Men will not be judged in the last day by the opinion which they had of themselves. For this confidence, it would seem, never forsakes some to the last, who nevertheless will be cast into utter darkness. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. In early life, the writer knew some high professors of his own denomination, who could tell the day and hour when God had mercy on them. One of these, a fair-spoken, plausible man, who had spent the former part of his life in pleasure and dissipation, gave such an account of his conversion as was adapted to produce envy and discouragement in professors who had been less favored. And not only could he designate the month and day of the month, but the hour of the day when he obtained reconciliation with God. No one doubted of his piety, but mark the event. This high professor, a few years afterwards, was excommunicated from the church for manifest perjury. Another, whose experience was remarkable and his conversion sudden, became a preacher, then a fanatic, and finally an infidel. This man told me that though often in great spiritual distress, he never doubted of the goodness of his state. They who believe that a man may be a saint today and a devil tomorrow, not in appearance only, but in reality, easily account for these apostasies. But we are inclined to hold fast by what the beloved disciple says about such in his time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Few men in later times appear to have arisen to greater eminence and piety than Henry Martin, the missionary. The strength of the principle of holiness in his case was manifested in his habitual spirituality of mind and constant exercise of self-denial. Yet, as far as is related, his incipient exercises of religion were by no means strongly marked, but seemed to have been rather obscure and feeble. The same is the fact respecting those two distinguished men of God, Philip and Matthew Henry, the Father and the Son. The early exercises of these men were not in any respect remarkable. Indeed, they both became pious when very young, and we rarely get a very distinct and accurate account of the commencement of piety in early life. But no one who is acquainted with the lives of these eminent ministers will deny that they grew up to an uncommon degree of piety, which in the experience of both, though characterized by genuine humility, was free from any mixture of gloom or austerity. True religion could be rarely found exhibiting so cheerful a mien and so amiable an aspect. And yet with these men everything became a part of their religion. To this one object their whole lives were devoted. I have derived much satisfaction and, I hope, profit from the account from Thomas Halliburton. 1674 to 1712, giving of his religious experience, especially because the account was given when the writer was advanced in years and when his judgment was fully matured. Many youthful narratives of pious exercises are very fervent, 
but they are frothy and marked with that kind of ignorance and self-confidence which arise from inexperience. Halliburton is an example of a person brought up under religious discipline and instruction, and under constant restraint, whose convictions of sin were nevertheless exceedingly pungent and awful. His conversion, too, was sudden, and his first exercises of faith clear and strong. I cannot, says he, be very positive about the day or the hour of this deliverance, nor can I satisfy many other questions about the way and manner of it. As to these things I may say with the blind man, one thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. It was towards the close of January, or the beginning of February 1698, that this seasonable relief came, and, so far as I can remember, I was at secret prayer in great extremity, not far from despair when the Lord seasonably stepped in and gave this merciful turn to affairs. When I said there was none to save then, his arm brought salvation. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shined into my mind, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That which afforded me relief was the discovery of the Lord as manifested in his word. He said to me, Thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. Let me see that there are forgivenesses with him that with him is mercy and plenteous redemption. He made all his goodness pass before me and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, who will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. This was a strange sight to one who before looked on God only as a consuming fire, which I could not see and live. He brought me from Sinai and his thunderings to Mount Zion and to the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that cleanses from all sin and speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. He revealed Christ in his glory. I now with wonder beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I was made by this sight to say, Thou art fairer than the sons of men. And I was hereby further satisfied that not only was there forgiveness of sins and justification by free grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. But I saw, moreover, with wonder and delight, how God by this means might be just even in justifying the ungodly who believe in Jesus. How was I ravished with delight when made to see that the God in whom, a little before, I thought there was no help for me or any sinner in my case, if indeed there were any such, notwithstanding his spotless purity, his deep hatred of sin, his inflexible justice and righteousness, and his unimpeachable faithfulness pledged in the threatenings of the law, might not only pardon, but without prejudice to his justice or his attributes, might be just, even justify in the ungodly. And the Lord further opened the gospel call to me. And let me see that even to me was the word of this salvation sent. All this was offered unto me, and I was invited to come and freely take of the waters of life, and to come in my distress unto the blessed rest. 
He, to my great satisfaction, gave me a pleasing discovery of his design in the whole, that it was that no flesh might glory in his sight, but that he who glories should glory only in the Lord, and that he might manifest the riches of his grace, and be exalted and show in mercy, and that we in the end might be saved. The Lord revealed to my soul the full and suitable provision made in this way against the power of sin. That is, there is righteousness in him, so there is strength, even everlasting strength in the Lord Jehovah, to secure us against all enemies. When this strange discovery was made of a relief, wherein full provision was made for all the concerns of God's glory, my salvation in subordination thereto, my soul was, by a sweet and glorious power, carried out to rest in it, as worthy of God, in every way suitable and satisfying in my case. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. All these discoveries were conveyed to me by the Scriptures only. It was not indeed by one particular promise or testimony of Scripture, but by the concurring light of a great many, seasonably set home and most plainly expressing the truths above mentioned. The promises and truths of the Bible, in great abundance and variety, were brought to remembrance, and the wonders contained in them were set before my eyes in the light of the world. He sent His Word to heal me. But it was not the Bible alone that conveyed the discovery. For most of these passages whereby I was relieved, I had formerly in my distress read and thought upon, without finding any relief in them. But now the Lord shined into my mind by them. Formerly I was acquainted only with the letter, which profits not. But now the Lord's words were spirit and life, and in his light I saw light. God opened my eyes to see wonders out of his law. There was light in his words, a burning light by them, shone into my mind, not merely some doctrinal knowledge, but the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light that I now had shone from heaven. It was not a spark kindled by my own endeavors, but it shone suddenly about me. It came by the word of God, a heavenly means. It opened heaven and discovered heavenly things, even the glory of God, and it led me up as it were to heaven. Its whole tendency was heavenward. It was a true light, given manifestations of God, even the one true God, and the one mediator between God and man, and given a true view of my state with respect to God. It was a pleasant and a sweet light. It had a heavenly satisfaction in God attending it. It led to a pleasure in the fountain whence it came. It was a distinct and clear light, not only representing spiritual things, but manifesting them in their glory. It put all things in their proper place and due subordination to God, and gave distinct views of their genuine tendency. It was a satisfying light. The soul rested in the discovery that it made and was satisfied. It could not doubt of what it saw, and that things were as they were represented. It was a quickening, refreshing, and healing light. When the Son of Righteousness arose, there was healing under His wings. It was a great light. It made discoveries which were easily distinguished from any former discoveries I had ever made, and it was a powerful light. It dissipated that thick darkness which had overspread my mind, and made all those frightful temptations which had formerly disturbed me fly before it. 
It was composing, not like a sudden flash of lightning, which fills a soul with fear and amazement, but it composed and quieted my soul, and put all my faculties, as it were, in their due posture, and gave me the exercise of them. It destroyed not, but improved my former knowledge. But as the true idea of light is not conveyed by the ear, so no words can convey the idea of light to the blind. And he who has eyes will need no words to describe it. It is like the new name that none knows save he that has it. The first discernible effect of this light was an approbation of God's way of saving sinners by Jesus Christ to the glory of His grace. And this I take to be the true scriptural notion of justifying faith. For it not only answers the scripture descriptions of it by receiving, coming, looking, trusting, believing, and so on, but it really gives God that glory which He designed by all this contrivance, the glory of His wisdom, grace, mercy, and truth. Now this discovery of the Lord's name brought me to trust in Him, and glory only in the Lord. I found my soul fully satisfied in these discoveries, as pointing out a way of relief, altogether and in all respects suitable to the need of a poor, guilty, self-condemned, self-destroyed sinner, driven from all other reliefs. In this I rested, as in a way of full peace, comfort, security, and satisfaction, and as providing abundantly for all those ends I desired to have secured. And this approbation was not merely for a time, but ever after in all temptations it discovered itself, by keeping me in a fixed assent and adherence of mind to the truth, and full persuasion of it, that God has granted unto us eternal life, and this life is in His Son." The next observable effect of this discovery was that it set me right as to my chief end, and made me look to the glory of God, for which formerly I had no real concern. Now mine eye was made, in some measure, single in I in the Lord's honor. It manifested itself in frequent desires that the Lord might be honored and glorified in my life, or by my death. It kept my soul fixed in the persuasion that it was every way meet that I should take shame and confusion of myself as what truly and only belonged to me, and that the glory of my salvation was only and entirely the Lord's due. A third discernible effect was that I was led to look upon his yoke to be easy and his burden light, and account that his commandments were not grievous but right concerning all things. This was very contrary to my former temper. I now came to a fixed persuasion that the law was not only just, such as I could make no reasonable exception against, but holy, and such as became God, and good, such as was every way suited to my true interest and peace and advantage, which I could never think before. The duties to which my heart was most averse had now become agreeable and refreshing. A fourth remarkable effect of this discovery was the exercise of evangelical repentance, which was very different in many respects from that sorrow with which I was before acquainted. It differed in its rise. Sorrow before flowed from the discovery of sin as it brings on wrath. Now it flowed from a sense of sin as containing wretched unkindness to one who was himself astonishingly kind to an unworthy wretch. I looked on him whom I had pierced and did mourn. Sorrow formerly wrought death, alienated my heart from God, and thus dispirited me for duty, and made me fear hurt from him. 
But this sorrow filled my heart with kindness to God and to His ways, sweetened my soul and endeared God to it. It flowed from a sense of His favor to an unworthy wretch that deserved none, and with thus a godly sorrow leading to kindness to God and a drawing near Him, but with much humble sense of my own unworthiness like the returning prodigal. The more God manifested of His kindness, the more still did this feeling increase. When He was pacified, then I was ashamed and confounded. The sorrow I had before I looked on as a burden. It was nothing but selfish concern for my own safety and a fear of the righteous resentment of God. But this sorrow was sweet and pleasant, as being the exercise of filial gratitude, and I took pleasure in the surprising manifestations of God's favor to one so unworthy, and in acknowledging my own unworthiness. This sorrow was a spring of activity, and I was glad to be employed in the meanest errand that might give opportunity to evidence how deeply I was grieved for my former disobedience. It resulted in a return to the way of life, and to such a course as upon a review I did not repent of, but delighted in, and in which I desired continually to advance. It wrought carefulness to avoid sin, anxiety to please God, indignation against sin, fear of offending God again, vehement desire of having sin removed, the Lord glorified, and obedience promoted. A fifth discernible effect was in humble but sweet and comfortable hope and persuasion of my own salvation, answerable to the clearness of the discovery. When the Lord gave me this view of the way of salvation, He satisfied me that it was a way full of peace and security, the only way which I might safely venture. Hereby I was freed from the disquieting fear that the ground of my trust would fail. I was satisfied I could not fail otherwise than by missing this way. While I held fast and reposed with satisfaction on what I was convinced was safe, I could not but be quiet and composed about the result. This shows how nearly allied faith and assurance are, though they are not the same, and therefore no wonder the one should be taken for the other. This discovery manifested that salvation was in the way of self-denial and trust in the Lord alone, for nothing so soon marred this hope as the least appearance of self and stirring of pride. Whenever the glory of the Lord appeared and He spake peace, I was filled with shame, and the deeper this humiliation was, the more the humble confidence of my safety increased. A sixth discernible difference was with respect to the ordinances of the Lord's appointment. I was drawn to follow them as the Lord's institutions, and His appointed means of our obtaining discoveries of His beauty. I desired to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I was brought to exercise more liveliness when the Lord revealed Himself. My soul then followed hard after Him. When the Lord enlarged me and caused me to approach to Him and see His glory, He still humbled me, discovered self, and put me in opposition to it. I was now acquainted in some measure with that boldness and freedom of access, with humble confidence to God as on a throne of grace, manifesting Himself in Christ. In a word, I was in some measure sensible of the Lord's hiding or manifesting Himself. According as I perform my duty, and of the necessity of the exercise of grace, particularly faith in all approaches to God. Although in the preceding authentic narrative of religious experience we have entered more into detail than usual, 
Yet we are persuaded that the serious reader will not think the account too long or too particular. I have not met with any account of Christian experience which is so full and satisfactory as this. And when it is known to have been written by a man of sound understanding and most exemplary piety at a later period of life, when his judgment was matured by much experience, it cannot but furnish a decisive proof of the reality of experimental religion, which cannot be gainsaid. In these exercises there is not a tincture of enthusiasm. Indeed, holy affections thus produced by the contemplation of truth are the very opposite of enthusiasm, which always substitute human fancies or impulses for the truths of God, which it uniformly undervalues. In this case we see also how high the exercises of scriptural piety may rise without degenerating into any extravagance. Many Christians seem not to know or believe that such spiritual discoveries of the beauty of holiness and the glory of the Lord are now attainable, but still there are some, and often those of the humbler class of society, who are privileged with these spiritual discoveries and prize them above all price. The language of such is, one day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of sin. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. It is delightful to trace the effects of God's truth in producing every holy affection when it is discerned by the light of the Holy Spirit. Faith is almost identified with this view. Love flows out sweetly and spontaneously. Evangelical repentance is enkindled. The soul is clothed with humility. Zeal for God's glory is predominant. His ordinances are sought with desire and found to be channels which freely communicate with the rich fountain of grace beneath the throne of God. So far are right views of free grace from leading those who entertain them to indulge in indolence or be careless about holy living that they impart the only true cause of activity and diligence and work of the Lord. In the foregoing account, the reader may learn the nature of true religion more clearly than from many sermons and long treatises, but the humble, doubting Christian must not make the measure of grace which this favored saint enjoyed the standard by which to judge of the reality of his own religious experience. The same light may shine with vastly different degrees of clearness from the meridian blaze down to the frank crepuscular dawn. But the rays come from the same source, and that which is now but just discernible in the midst of shades of departing night will go on to increase until it shines more and more to the perfect day. Let not the extraordinary clearness and distinctness discourage those who are sincerely desirous to see the beauty of the Lord, but let them rather take fresh courage in a pursuit, which from this example they find may be crowned with glorious success." They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Chapter 9 Christian Experience of R.C. Narrative of Sir Richard Heal's Experience The following extracts from a narrative of the Christian experience of R.C. will serve to illustrate some points which have heretofore been treated particularly the gradual manner in which some persons are brought to the knowledge of the truth, 
and the extreme difficulty of ascertaining, in many cases, where common grace ends and special grace commences. I grew up, says the narrator, to manhood with very little thought of religion, and without experiencing any serious impressions, except the alarm occasionally produced by the death of a companion or relative. Whilst I habitually cherished a great dislike to strict religion, which frowned upon a life of pleasure and amusement, I entertained a strong prejudice in favor of Christianity in general, and that particular denomination to which my parents and ancestors belonged. I called this a prejudice, for I knew nothing of the evidences of the truth of Christianity, and had only a very vague and confused notion of what the scriptures contained, except that when a child I had read frequently many portions of the historical parts of the Bible. In this state of mind I was exposed to the common objections of infidels, which arose from reading history, and finding that all nations had their respective religions, in which they believed as firmly as we did in ours, and the thought often occurred, why may they not be in the right and we in the wrong? But about this time infidelity began to prevail, and its abettors to be bold in declaring their opinions. My mind was so completely unfurnished with arguments in favor of Christianity that the only thing on which I could fix was that it had come down from my ancestors and the people with whom I was conversant generally believed in it. But this was far from satisfying my mind. I began to feel uneasy for fear that we were all wrong in our belief, but the thought was never pleasing to my mind. As to books of evidences, I knew nothing about them and cannot remember that I had ever heard of such works and I was so situated that I had no one to whom I could apply for instruction. The only person with whom I had any communication on literary subjects was a gentleman who, though he said nothing to me on the subject, was deeply imbued with skeptical opinions. Being separated from the companions of my youth, and placed in a secluded situation where, except on particular occasions, I saw little company, and where there were few opportunities of hearing instructive preaching, I was cast upon my own thoughts, and my reflections were often not very pleasing. One day, it was the Lord's Day, as I was looking over some books which I had in a trunk, my eye caught the words, Internal Evidences of the Christian Religion. I had often seen the same book, and never so much as thought what the subject of it was, but in my present perplexity I seized it with avidity and began to read. The work was the celebrated treatise of Soami Jennings. I never removed from where I was, sitting until I had finished it, and as I proceeded the light of evidence poured in upon my mind with such power of demonstration that at the conclusion I had the idea of the room being full of resplendent light. I enjoyed a pleasure which none can appreciate, but those who have been led to the contemplation of the truth in a light perplexing circumstance. Not only were all my doubts removed, but I wanted no more evidence. My conviction of the truth of Christianity was complete. I believe it could not have been increased. But still I knew scarcely anything of the method of salvation revealed in the gospel. I entertained the common legal notions of thousands of ignorant people, that at a convenient time I would become good, never doubting for a moment of my ability to do all that was requisite. The only thing which gave me uneasiness was the fear of a sudden death, which would not afford me the opportunity of repenting and making my peace with God. But the hope prevailed that I should die a lingering death and be in my senses, and then I would do all that was requisite to prepare me for heaven, 
while at the same time I had no definite idea what the preparation was. During this period I was exposed to few temptations, but still some sins had dominion over me. One day a child brought to me a small book and said that Mrs. T. requested that I read it and return it soon, as it was borrowed. The title was Jinx on Submission to the Righteousness of God. I read the book through at a single sitting, and again a new light sprung up in my mind. The author, in the introduction, gives an account of his ignorance of the true method of a sinner's justification until he had been for years a preacher. He was a minister of the Church of England. I now found that I likewise had been all my life ignorant of the way of salvation, for I entertained the same legal and unscriptural notions which he proves to be utterly erroneous. Although these new views seem to have been merely intellectual, yet they afforded me a great satisfaction. I had now a distinct knowledge of the gospel method of justification, which I afterwards retained. Another copy of this book I have never seen. The preaching to which I had access was mostly of a wild, fanatical kind, and the way in which I heard the new birth described tended to prejudice me against the doctrine of regeneration. I had never before heard anything about this change, and yet I was sure that I knew some very good and religious people. I began to be troubled to know whether sober, intelligent Christians believed in this doctrine. It also became a subject of discussion in the little circle with which I was conversant, and I found that one person in the company professed to have experienced this change. Another was convinced of its reality, but professed to be merely an inquirer. A third was of opinion that it related to the conversion of Jews and infidels, and that there was no other regeneration except in baptism, and the fourth was a skeptical gentleman, already mentioned, who was incredulous about the whole matter. In these conversations, I, being young and ignorant, took no part, but I listened to them with intense interest. I had recourse to such books as I had access to, but could find nothing that was satisfactory, for my range of religious books was very narrow, and few of these of an evangelical cast. The person of my acquaintance who professed conversion one day gave me a narrative of the various steps and changes experienced in this transition from darkness to light. As I entertain a favorable opinion of the veracity and sincerity of the individual, I began to think there might be something in it. Although I had experienced no remarkable change thus far, I knew that the subject of religion had become one of much more frequent thought, and excited much more interest in my mind than formerly. One evidence of this was that I commenced secret prayer, a duty utterly neglected until this time, except when some one of the family was dangerously sick. I had selected a retired spot, surrounded by a thick growth of trees and bushes on the margin of a brook. Here I made a kind of arbor, over a little plat of green grass, and in the summer evenings I would resort to this sequestered spot. It was on the afternoon of a Sunday. I was reading a sermon on the long-suffering and patience of God and waiting with delay in sinners. And so many things applied so exactly to my own case that I became so much affected with the sense of the divine goodness and forbearance in sparing me and waiting so long with me while I was living in neglect of Him that I felt impelled to go out and weep. I was reading the sermon aloud to the family by request. I laid down the book abruptly and hastened to my retirement, where I poured out a flood of tears and prayer. And suddenly I was overwhelmed with a flood of joy. It was ecstatic beyond anything which I had ever conceived. 
For though I thought religion a necessary thing, I never had an idea that there was any positive pleasure in its exercises. Whence this joy originated, I knew not. The only thing which had been on my mind was the goodness and patience of God, and my own ingratitude. Neither can I now say how long it continued, but the impression left was that I was in the favor of God and should certainly be happy forever. When the tumult of feeling had subsided, I began to think that this was conversion. This was the great change of which I had recently heard so much. It occurred to me, when walking home, that if this was indeed a change called a new birth, it would be evinced by my forsaking all my sins. This suggestion appeared right, and I determined to make this a test of its reality. All the evening my mind was in a delightful calm, but the next day my feelings had returned into their old channel. I was grieved at this, and resorted to the same place where I had experienced such a delightful frame, in hopes that by some kind of association the same scene would be renewed. But though there was the place and all the objects of yesterday, the soul-ravishing vision was not there. And after a feeble attempt at prayer, and lingering for some time, I returned without meeting with anything which I sought and desired. It was not long before I was subjected to the test which I had fixed, a temptation to a besetting sin was presented, and I had no strength to resist but was instantly overcome. This failure gave me inexpressible pain on reflection. I did not know how dear were my cherished hopes until they were wrested from me. I never felt a keener regret at any loss which I ever experienced. Although I was constrained to admit that I was not a regenerated person, I was sensible of a considerable change in my views and feelings on the subject of religion. I had no longer any doubt of the necessity of regeneration, and entertained some consistent notions of what it effects must be. I had, as before stated, acquired evangelical views of the way in which a sinner must be justified, and entertained different feelings from what I had formerly towards religious people. Formerly they were objects of dread and aversion. Now I felt a sincere regard and high respect for the same characters, and was pleased when I heard of any of my friends becoming religious, or more serious than before. I had now an opportunity of hearing an able minister preach an evangelical sermon on the text, for our righteousness or its filthy rags, and so on, and I cannot tell the gratification I experienced in hearing the doctrine of justification, which I had fully embraced, preached distinctly and luminously from the pulpit, but when I looked around on the audience, I had the impression that they were all, or nearly all, ignorant of what he was saying, and were still trusting to their own works. It now gave me pleasure also to converse on the doctrines of religion, and I felt a real abhorrence of vicious courses. This was my state of mind when Providence cast my lot, where a powerful revival had been in progress for some time. I had witnessed something of this kind in a wild fanatical sect, where bodily agitations were common and violent, but this was a different scene. The principal conductor and preacher was a man of learning and eloquence, and his views of experimental religion, as I think, most correct and scriptural. If he erred, it was on the safe side, in believing in the thorough conversion of but a small number of those who appeared impressed. In entering into this scene, I experienced various new and conflicting feelings. The young converts spoke freely in my presence of their conviction and conversion, but often with a degree of levity which surprised me. In their conversations I could take no part, 
And although my general purpose was to consider myself an unawakened, unconverted sinner, yet when I heard the marks of true religion laid down, and especially by the distinguished preacher before mentioned, I could not prevent the thought arising continually, if this is religion, then you have experienced it. This seemed to me to be the suggestion of a false hope by the enemy to prevent my falling under conviction. Still the idea was continually presented to my mind, and with the appearance of truth. I took occasion to state the matter to the clergyman above alluded to, as soon as I could gain access to him, for I was diffident and timid, and had never opened my case to anyone freely. I told him all my former exercises, and stated distinctly that they had not been sufficient to break the habit of sinning to which I was addicted. As soon as I mentioned this part, he said in a peremptory tone, Then surely your exercises were not of the nature of true religion. You must seek a better hope, or you will never be admitted into heaven. This decisive answer drove away from that moment every idea of my being in a state of grace, and I felt relieved from what I had myself considered a temptation to entertain a false hope. Now I began to seek conviction as a necessary preliminary to conversion, and hoped that every sermon which I heard would be the means of striking terror into my soul. I read the most awakening discourses, went to hear the most arousing preachers, endeavored to work on my own mind by imagining the awful realities of the judgment and the torments of the damned. I strove to draw the covering from the pit, that I might behold the lake of fire and hear the wellings of the damned. But the more I sought these awful feelings of conviction, the further they seemed to fly from me. My heart seemed to grow harder every day. I was sensible of nothing but insensibility. I became discouraged, and the more because I was obliged to remove from the scene of the revival to a place where there was no concern about religion and the people generally, and where I expected the preaching to be cold and lifeless. I spent a day before my departure in secret and in solemn reflection on my deplorable and hopeless case. I ran over all the kind dispensations of God's providence towards me and reflected on the many precious means of grace which I had recently enjoyed without effect. The conclusion which seemed now to be forced on my mind was that God had given me up to a hard heart and that I never should be so happy as to obtain religion. This conclusion had, to my mind, all the force of a certainty, and I began to think about the justice of God and my condemnation, and no truth ever appeared with more lucid evidence to my mind. I fully justified God in sending me to hell. I saw that it was not only right, but I did not see how a just God could do otherwise, and I seemed to acquiesce in it as a righteous and necessary thing. At this moment my mind became more calm than it had been for a long time. All striving and effort on my part ceased, and being in the woods I recollected that it was time for me to return to the house where I expected to meet some friends. Here I found a minister waiting for me, whom I had seen but never spoken to. He took me aside and began to represent the many privileges which I had enjoyed, and expressed a hope that I had received some good impressions. I told him that it was true, that I had been highly favored, but that I had now come to a fixed conclusion that I should certainly be forever lost. For under all these means I had not received the slightest conviction without which my conversion was impossible. He replied by saying that no certain degree of conviction was necessary, that the only use of conviction was to make us feel our need of Christ as a Savior, and appealed to me whether I did not feel that I stood in need of a Savior. 
It then went on to say, Christ is an advocate of the right hand of God and stands ready to receive any case which is committed to his hands. And however desperate your case may now appear to be, only commit it to him, and he will bring you off safely, for he is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. Here a new view broke in on my mind. I saw that Christ was able to save even me, and I felt willing to give my cause into his hands. This discovery of the bare possibility of salvation was one of the greatest deliverances I ever experienced. I was affected exceedingly with the view which I had of this truth, so as to be unable to speak. Hope now sprung up in my desolate soul, not that I was pardoned or accepted. Such a thought did not occur, but that it was yet possible that I might be hereafter, and I was resolved never to give over seeking until I obtained a blessing. All that evening I was sweetly composed, and precious promises and declarations of the word of God came dropping successfully into my mind, as if they had been whispered to me. I never could have believed, unless I had experienced it, that the mere possibility of salvation would produce such comfort. About this time, next morning probably, when I retired to the woods where my secret devotions were usually performed, I experienced such a melting of heart from a sense of God's goodness to me, as I never felt before or since. It seemed as if my eyes, so hard to weep commonly, were now a fountain of tears. The very earth was watered with their abundance. Indeed, my heart itself seemed to be dissolved, just as a piece of ice is dissolved by the heat of the sun. Of the particular exercises of this melting season, my memory does not retain a distinct recollection. For some months, I attended two religious duties with various fluctuations of feeling. Sometimes I entertain a pleasing hope that I was indeed a Christian, a renewed person, but at other times I was not only distressed with doubts, but came to the conclusion that I was still in my sins. The only thing which I deemed it important to mention during this period was a deeper discovery of the wickedness of my own heart. This conviction of deep-rooted inherent depravity distressed me much, but I obtained considerable relief from reading Owen on Indwelling Sin. This book exhibited the state of my heart much better than I could have done myself. Still, however, I was much dissatisfied with myself, because after so long a time I had made so little progress. On one occasion, at the close of the exercises of the Sabbath, I was so deeply sensible that my soul was still in imminent danger of perdition, that I solemnly resolved to begin a new and more vigorous course of engagedness to secure my salvation. I had spent much time in reading accounts of Christian experience, and those which lay down the marks and evidences of true religion, such as Owen on spiritual mindedness, Edwards on religious affections, Guthrie's trial of a saving interest in Christ, Newton's letters, Pike and Hayward's cases of conscience, and so on. I also conversed much with old and experienced Christians, as well as with those of my own age. But all these having, as it then seemed to me, very little facilitated my progress, and the evils of my heart seeming rather to increase, I hastily resolved to lay aside all books except the Bible, and to devote my whole time to prayer and reading until I experienced a favorable change. 
In pursuance of this purpose, I withdrew into a deeply retired spot, where I knew I should be free from all intrusion from mortals, and began my course of exertion with fasting and strong resolution never to relinquish my efforts until I found relief. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.